Bible this morning, find the book of Deuteronomy and also Judges. Some of you are like, I don't know where those are. If you have a paper Bible, they're both towards the very, very beginning. Okay, Deuteronomy and Judges. Uh, Today is the fourth week in a a message series. We've just simply titled it Glory, Glory. Uh, Next week, I'm planning at this point to speak next week on this topic as well. I have some thoughts that I feel like God has kind of put in my heart for, for next week. Uh, but we have been asking this question, what does it look like for us to live as followers of Jesus in a culture that is really marked by wealth, freedom, and safety? Uh, and we've looked at the lives of people around the world. We've looked at Christians living in difficult places. We've looked at places where it's illegal to be followers of Christ. We've looked at the lives of missionaries who have left this uh, America and gone to difficult places like Carl and and Sarah, and we've talked about that type of stuff. There are many, many Christians right now in our world who have so little that they literally are praying to God for their daily bread. And yet here we sit in America, central Minnesota, with more than we need, with no fear. We can gather together legally as Christians. We can own Bibles. We can talk about our faith without feeling like we are going to be arrested, okay? We live in freedom, and here's the crazy thing about this. You did nothing to earn that or deserve that. It was everything had to do with the place that you were born. You had a 6% chance when you were born to be born in our country, 6%, 6 out of 100, and you won that lottery, okay? Do you understand that? You had a much greater chance of being born in a place where you live on a dollar a day. And sometimes we take this for granted. And, and, I, and I mean nothing, I, I do not mean to put anything down when it comes to the military and we've earned our freedom here in America and all of that. But the reality for us is we were born in a place where this is our life and you can make something of your life and you can work hard and you can get a job and you can have a home and you can do that stuff. And it was all the lottery pick of where you were born. And let's just be real about some of this. We are fortunate, and as Christians, I mean, Jesus flat out says, to whom much is given, much is required. And the whole thing about this entire, this entire series for me is that just that I feel like I have been given much, but I don't feel like there's been much that is required of me. And for me, I find myself wrestling with this tension of what does this mean for me and what does this look like for me to live as a follower of Jesus in a place where I don't deal with any of that stuff. And I don't have to pray to God for my daily bread. I can walk to the kitchen. Maybe I'm the only one who has wrestled with this, but this has been my life over the past few years, actually. Okay, Uh, we talked about the tension that we should feel in this and how tension is good. And tension brings growth. And when we wrestle with these types of things, things come from that. Much of the scripture is meant to be wrestled with. And it can be a freeing thing when we realize that we don't have to have everything figured out, by the way. But just the idea that, that we should feel the tension in how we live as Americans. We also talked about the battle that we face all the time between the things of God and the things of this world and how the world pulls at us. The Bible never says that wealth is a sin. The Bible never hints at that, but it does warn us against uh, 
like against the pull of the world and the fact that the more that you have, the more world, the world pulls you in that direction. Then last week we talked about pride and humility. And if I'm just honest with myself like, or, or about this whole situation, I had all sorts of questions from people after that sermon last week. Uh, it's messy. And I don't have answers to all your questions when it comes to pride and humility. Here's what I do know, that Adam and Eve, pride was their issue that started it all. Satan, pride was his issue. As the scripture says, he was an angel of God who then decided I could be as good as God and everything became about him. And all of a sudden, boom, he ends up where he is. From the very beginning, pride has been an issue in people and in our world. And you deal with it and I deal with it. And so many times we don't see it in ourselves. Okay. If you have any questions about that stuff, I probably don't have an answer, but that's great. And you can watch those messages on our website, and we're just figuring all this out together. Are you with me? All right. And that brings us to today, and here's where I feel God leading us really for the next two weeks. Uh, if I'm honest about it, I, I stand up here and I, and I speak, and sometimes I kind of feel the pressure to preach some new amazing thing to you. And like, and like wow you and whatever else. And again, this is pride that shows itself in my life. As I, make, I now make the preaching of the very word of God about me. You see how easy that, easily that sneaks in. Uh, but as I was thinking and praying about this week, I just sort of felt free. Because in this season, for me, every time I open the Bible, I come face to face with the same things over and over again. It's kind of like um, when you buy a vehicle. You ever had this happen, how you buy a vehicle, whatever, and then you start driving on the road and you start seeing that vehicle everywhere? Do you know what I'm talking about? And you're like, wow, I didn't know there was so many Ford Explorers in our world, but now I see them everywhere that I go. The reality was they were not, there was not like any less of them before that. It was just now you see that because that's where you're at. In this season for me, my heart is very specifically in a certain place. And so when I open the Bible, everything I read right now is read through the lens of pride and humility and wealth and how to handle that. And like all, everything I read right now, it comes in that place, okay? That's where my heart is in this season. And the issue I was having is that these weeks for me is as we've been studying and looking, these weeks for me feel a lot the same. And maybe you've thought that, like, I feel like every week, Pastor Kyle, we've ended at the same place. We've got to be humble, okay? We get it. We've already heard you say that, okay? But I just felt God kind of say to me, it's okay. Just continue to study the Bible together and learn and grow, even if it's the same message over and over and over again. They probably didn't listen, and we probably didn't listen last time. Okay, that's, that was a joke, and I didn't mean that to be offensive. But if you're like me, then that's your situation as well. You get it, okay? So today is going to have similarities to the past few weeks, but we're going to see it from a much different perspective. In fact, we're going to look at a portion of Scripture that is a thousand plus years older than the stuff we've been looking at. And in fact, we're going to look at two specific places. The first place is what I'm going to call the warning and the second is a story that comes out of a failure to respond correctly to that warning. Okay, but before we get to that today, I want us to just pray together again and again. And so stand with me all over this place. And let's just take a moment to kind of align our hearts together uh, 
to what God may want to say to us. And so God, we invite you into this moment, every word that we say, every word that we hear. Let it be directly from you. God, I do not want this to be about me. None of it, God. Let this truly be about you and your glory. Help me, teach me, show me, uh, give the words, and let your very word and these stories from thousands of years ago, let this be relevant and speak to our hearts. And so, God, we open ourselves up in this moment to hard conversations and to what you would have to say. We give this to you in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, give somebody a high five and have a seat. All right, we got to go quickly. I took too long on the introduction again. I have that issue. Uh, everybody likes it when the underdog wins, don't they? You know what I'm talking about? Uh, like when someone doesn't have a good chance at all and then somehow something incredible happens. We make movies about that stuff all the time. Half the Disney movies are like that, by the way. We have Cinderella. I'm going to even put pictures on the screen for you just for fun. Okay, we have Cinderella, the poor misfit of the family who wins the prince's heart. Wow, that's awesome, isn't it? The underdog story. We have the Cinderella story. We even say that when we're talking about sports and stuff. We have Aladdin, the poor street kid who gets to marry Princess Jasmine in the end. We like these stories like that, don't we? Okay, we have stories of people who, who came from nothing and did great things. We have Serena and Venus Williams. Okay, they have a new movie about that not that long ago. Uh, we, like many people, would put, put them as like the top two female tennis players in history. Uh, they were poverty-stricken inner-city kids who somehow thrived in a white, rich kid sport in their time. I mean, uh, we like stories like that. They weren't supposed to make it. Everything was against them, yet they would do incredible things. We like the 1980 U.S. hockey team, okay? If you are my age or older, you know what that means, okay? Uh, some of you do not, but that's okay. The U.S. team in 1980 was made up of a bunch of college kids. In fact, 12 of the 20 were from Minnesota, if you didn't know that. That's kind of cool, all right? They go up against these superior men of Russia, the Soviet Union, who had dominated the Olympics and the world in the sport of hockey for about two decades. Seriously, the U.S. and Russia played a game together uh, about a month before this game right here, and U.S. lost like 10 to 1 or 10 to 3 or something. We got stomped, and then we go to the 1980 Olympics. No one gives us a chance, and do you believe in miracles? That was the announcer did that, okay? And the miracle on ice happens. We got that. We have stories like Hoosiers, which I love the story of Hoosiers. You don't know what that means because some of you or whatever, okay? Hoosiers is a story. 1954, a uh, little tiny school in Indiana defeats the big powerhouse and win to win the state tournament. It's such a good, they were not expected to do that. It was not supposed to happen. They were not as good, not as big, not as strong, and they won. We like war stories, don't we, of people who did incredible things. And uh, Desmond Dawes from World War II, they made a movie about him, 150-pound conscientious objector who wouldn't carry a gun. People laughed at him, uh, humiliated him, 
His story is crazy, but he single-handedly goes on to save the lives of like 75 American soldiers, okay? Undersized, outmatched, outgunned, and this skinny teenager would be awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor by the U.S. Armed Forces. We like stuff like that. I could go on, Karate Kid, and all, you know, whatever. There's all sorts of movies about this. Daniel, never mind, we're not going there. We don't have time, okay? Uh, what we're going to see today eventually is a story like that. In fact, let me just give you the ending of the story right away. We're going to see an army of 300 men win a battle against 100,000 soldiers in the Bible. You didn't know that was in there, did you? 300 men win the battle against 100,000 soldiers. But before we get to that story, I want to show you how the Israelites got themselves into that situation. Long story short, because we're moving through a thousand years of history in about two minutes here to set this up. The Jewish people, the Israelites, the Hebrews, that's all the same group of people, by the way, if you ever hear those phrases. They end up in Egypt. Uh, Joseph actually is why they ended up in Egypt, the Technicolor Dreamcoat stuff. He's sold by his brothers into slavery, and he ends up in Egypt and starts the entire Hebrew people being in that nation. Okay, well, eventually a new pharaoh... Pharaoh's going to come. The dude is not very nice. And he's, he's threatened by these Hebrew people, these Israelite people. And he says, enough of this. We're gonna, I'm going to make them slaves. So the entire nation of Israel living in Egypt becomes slaves. Over 400 years, they were slaves. Eventually to the point where they are a million people who are slaves in Egypt. Uh, the story says like that, uh, that they, they cried out to God in their distress and in their pain, and we're going to see that again and again, by the way, in this story, in their pain and in their poverty and in their persecution, the people cried out to God, and God shows himself. Uh, historically, that is known as the Exodus. There's an entire book of the Bible about it. Uh, all right, God hears their cries. He sends Moses, the Ten Commandments. The, you know, you've seen, maybe you've seen that movie if you're old like I am. Okay, uh, but they're set free from slavery, 10 plagues, parting the Red Sea. That's all of that story. Eventually, that people, as they would wander around by foot, are going to be brought to the edge of this beautiful land. These people do not have a home. They're living in tents and, and drinking out of the water from the rivers and whatever else. It's a crazy thing. And they're brought to the edge of this beautiful land, a land that God has promised to them. And they're standing at the brink all of them, and they look out over this land. Life has been hard. They've been through much, and along the way, they had experienced God's provision over and over again in different ways. But before they enter this promised land, God gives them a warning, and it's harsh, and it's pointed, and I want to read it to you. Maybe you've heard me read this one before. I've used this in different places, but it fits with where we're headed today. So this is the, this is the warning that God gives these people. Set free, set free, marched around for like 40 years. Now they're entering into this promised land that God has handed to them. And here's the warning. This is Deuteronomy okay, chapter 8. It says this, When you have eaten and are satisfied, Praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I'm giving you this day. 
Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God. What's interesting to me is he doesn't say it might, it possibly will. Like that is it's harsh. It's pointed. When this stuff begins to go well for you and you have more than you need and you have houses and all of this stuff, then your heart will become proud and you will forgive the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He led you through the vast and dreadful wilderness, that thirsty and waterless land with his venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you water out of a hard rock. He's, he's going through this list of miracles that God did for them. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors had never known, like basically crackers fell from the sky. It was a crazy story. All right, something your ancestors never known to humble and test you so that in the end it might go well with you. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. These people were slaves. Life was horrible. They cry out to God in their poverty, in their Okay, in their pain, in their persecution, and God does supernatural things for them. They wander around for a while. They're entering this promised land that God had brought them to this beautiful place. They would build cities and build homes and make life for themselves and their families, but they are warned. They're warned very simply, when things begin to go well for you, there will always be a temptation to make this about yourself. And to forget God, to forget God. When you're eating satisfied, you have more gold and silver, things multiply for you, you will become proud. And you will begin to say, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this. It is harsh and it is pointed. And when these people heard it, I guarantee they replied with, that will not be us. We will not do that. We will not, that, how could that ever happen to us with what God has done? And again and again, like for me, all this stuff just jumps off the page for me right now. Everything I look, everything I see, everything I read, this is everywhere. But listen, the more we have, the better things go for you, the better your health is, and the bigger your home is, and the longer you build bank accounts, and all of these types of things, you will be tempted again and again to be proud and to say, look what I have done. Look what I have created. No one thought this was possible for me. My seventh grade gym teacher told me I would never add up to anything. Look at me now. This business that I started was nothing 10 years ago. And look at what I have done. I have, I have sure made something of myself. And we forget God. We forget him. This is a warning for, this is a warning for them. The good news for us is this wasn't really a warning to us, right? And as you read further in the story, this is exactly what begins to happen. It's this slow, gradual thing where eventually they find themselves a godless nation. 
living in the spiritual apathy. They call themselves God's chosen people, the people of God, but they were just like Jesus said in Matthew chapter 8, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And God responds to these people, and this is over, we're now talking hundreds of years of, of, of time. God responds to these people by just sort of taking his hand of protection off of them. Uh, 200 and some years later, now we get to another story with these same people, okay? A different generation has come, but the current generation is living with the effects of what has happened before them. As they are now living in wealth and different things, and, and things now be begin to go very, very bad for these people. In fact, let me read this to you. This is Judges chapter 6. It's just farther along in the story, 200 years. We skipped a whole bunch of stuff. Judges chapter 6, like verse number 1, it just said the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. This is the same people. And for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. And then verse 6, Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. Does this sound familiar? Things begin to fall apart now for these people. The nations around them begin to attack. The nations around them begin to take things. They try to plant fields and stuff, and the nations around them begin to wipe it all away. They're hiding in cliffs and all of this stuff. It's like watching a rerun. The people are now suffering again. The people are now in pain. And what do they do in their pain, in their poverty and their pain? They cry out to God. Again and again, poverty and pain and persecution lead to a desperation for God. That is what we have seen again and again in this series. It's what we've talked about around the world in different ways. The Chinese people and the Christians there, we've, we've looked at some of those books and different things. We see this in the scripture. Poverty, pain, and persecution lead to a desperation for God. Wealth, safety, and freedom seem to lead to spiritual complacency. This is the story of the Bible in so many different ways. But the people cry out to God in their poverty and their pain. God responds to them by sending an angel to a man named Gideon. Originally, 200 years ago, he sends Moses. Moses is the one who is going to be used by God. Now we have the story of this man named Gideon, but it's really the story of Moses all over again. The angel says, Gideon, the Lord is with you, and he's sending you to save Israel from the Midianites. This is uh, Judges 6 and 7. There's all sorts of beautiful, powerful moments, but for the sake of time, let's just skip to the good part at the very end, all right? Uh, Gideon is now eventually placed in charge of an entire army of Israel. Uh, they are massively outmatched, though. If you've seen the Broadway play uh, Hamilton and the one that, okay, they were outgunned, outmanned, outnumbered, outplanned. That's right from that song. If you Some of you don't know what that means. That's okay. All right, I'm trying to be cool here, and I shouldn't do that. The army of Midian, the Bible says, is over 100,000 people. 100,000 people. Trained soldiers, well-trained soldiers. And Gideon has 32,000 men, mediocre men in comparison. This is a story from the Bible. 100,000 against 32,000. That means roughly... Every person over here has got to take out three over here to win. Got that? They're outmatched, outnumbered, outgunned, outplanned. 
The Midianites were better trained, better equipped, more advanced weaponry. This is all from the Bible. Three to one. We've got an underdog story here, but Gideon and army should really just pack up and go home in this situation. But it's just the beginning of this ridiculous story. Let me read to you the next part of it. This is Judge, Judges chapter 7, okay, verse 1. It says, early in the morning, Jeroboam, that is Gideon, he's got a couple different names, and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah, okay? But here's where we're getting to where we're going. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. No, no, that's not true. They got three for every one that we have. God, your math is not correct, is maybe what he's thinking, okay? You have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands or Israel would boast against me and say, my own strength has saved me. God speaks to him, says, you have, you have too many men. And then God says, I cannot deliver Midian into your hands or this entire nation of Israel would boast against me and say, look what we did. As soon as something good happens, the people will take the glory. They will take the credit and they will say, look what we did. We were outmanned, but man, are we awesome. God says, you have too many men. Verse 3, now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. 22,000 men left, while 10,000 remained. 22,000, okay, 32,000 minus 22,000. They did, it was easy math in this story, 10,000. We now have 100,000 incredibly trained, great weapons against 10,000. Now every single one over here is going to have to take out 10. Okay, God, you made your point. Verse 4. But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will thin them out for you. If I say this one will go with you, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. This is getting kind of weird. Okay, but 300 of them drank from cupped hands, lapping like a dog, and the rest got on their knees down to drink. Okay, 300 did this one way, so now we're going to be at 9,700, it looks like. Okay, verse 7, the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that I lapped, I will save you. What? That went a different way than I thought. Let all the others go home. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home, but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and trumpets of, okay? The, the Israel army is now 300, and there are 100,000 well-trained, well-armed men on the other side. The story is ridiculous. And again, I think we're so used to watching movies where underdogs come through in the midst of impossible odds, and like incredible warriors show up and all this type, but this is not Braveheart. Like, this is not what that is. Like, each individual soldier in the army now has to take out 333. If even you got one Braveheart guy who can do that, it still has to happen 300 times. And this is not like you drop bombs on people or even shoot guns. This is ridiculous right here. Gideon has to be thinking, this is a bad idea. God tells him, hey, I'll show you. Go sneak into the enemy's camp with a servant and go listen to what they have to say. And so this is nuts. Verse 13, Gideon arrives, he sneaks in. Just as 
a man was telling a friend his dream. So he's now snuck into the enemy camp, and, a friend, and someone is telling a friend a dream that they just had. This is the opposing army. He was saying, a round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midian camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His, fen, his friend responded, this can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. I had a dream. A loaf of bread came flying in to the, from over here and it hit one of our tents and the tent blew up. And his friend goes, a loaf of bread? That must mean that Gideon is coming. <laughs> Gideon now go back, goes back to his army. He believes in the impossible. God tells him, grab a, put down your swords and stuff and grab a bunch of trumpets and clay jars. So the 300 men have trumpets and clay jars. Uh, that's probably not that weird. Swords and knives would have not done a whole lot against 100,000, right? And we just heard a dream of a loaf of bread. This is getting very strange. But let me read you what happens, and this will kind of be the end of our story for today. This is verse 19. Gideon and the hundred men with him, because they kind of split into a couple different places, is what happened. Reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, or at night, just after they had char changed the guard. They blew their trumpets. They've now snuck into the enemy camp at night. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets, smashed the jars, grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow. They shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with the sword. And they kill each other. And 100,000 100, men are defeated by 300. And there's all sorts of things we can learn from this story. We could spend weeks on this thing. God is bigger than any army. We could talk about that. There's nothing impossible with God. We could talk about that. Like we didn't even read the part where Gideon comes from a super humble position God uses ordinary, humble people. We could talk about that. It's beautiful stuff. Beware of flying loaves of bread. We could talk about that. Okay? But for me, but for me, like seriously, I just cannot, I cannot help myself from seeing this pattern. And historically, this is just the beginning of the roller coaster ride that will be the history of the Jewish people. Slaves in Egypt for centuries, 400 years, entire generations come and go. They cry out to God in desperation, and he shows himself. Brings, brought to this beautiful land, incredible lush forests and rivers, and they build homes and all this stuff, and they forget God. God takes his hand off these people, and bad stuff begins to happen to them. And in their persecution and their poverty and their pain, they begin to cry out to God again. And again, God shows himself in the midst of that. It's not in the mountaintop that these people experience God it's, it's in the valleys. It's in the nasty moments. It's, it's in their pain that they experience him. And he warns them and things go well and the wheels fall off. Okay, and, and he says, and then we have this crazy story of Gideon. If I do things the normal way here, we're going to go through this all one more time the same exact way and you're going to declare that you did it. 
with a supernatural story, 300 defeat, 100,000, but history repeats itself, and the years go by, and the people turn away again, and the roller coaster goes up and down again and again. Eventually, Babylon is going to come in and almost entirely wipe Israel off of the map. There's a warning here for us. We've talked about this week one, week two, week three, just in slightly different ways. There's a warning. It's right here in the middle of the Bible. And we like to say this will never happen to us. That will never happen to me. And I'm not saying that some military power is going to come in and wipe out America. That is not the warning today. The warning is simply in our, in our wealth, in our freedom, in everything that we have. The temptation will always be there for us to become proud and for us to forget God or to be spiritually complacent and to be a nation filled with people who say, yes, I'm a Christian, but their lives looked exactly the same as everybody else. And when that becomes to happen, when that, when that, when that happens, then we know that we are missing something. When we eat and are satisfied, here's the Bible. When you eat and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good he has given you. Be careful not to forget God. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and purchase cars and boats and cabins, when your bank accounts begin to grow and your retirement accounts begin to fill and things are multiplying, you will be tempted to say, look what I have done. Look what I have accomplished. Look at me now. I have worked hard. I have made something of myself. It is by my power and my strength and my hands that I have all of this. But remember the Lord your God. Music team, will you please come and stand with me all over this place. Oh God, don't let this be me. Don't let this be us. God, don't let us live here in the midst of freedom and wealth and safety and forget you. God, teach us how to live. Teach us how to humble ourselves. Teach us how to live our lives with open hands, not grasping and holding on to everything that we have, but truly living our lives for your glory, whatever that means and whatever that costs. Teach me how to do that. God, I know that myself and my heart, that I am prone to wander, that I am prone to drift, that complacency, spiritual apathy is standing at the door all the time, pulling me. Pulling me to live my life the way that everybody, live my life the way that everybody else does. To take my cues on what life should look like from the people around me and the things I see. God, how easy I am fooled. And I pray that in this moment right here, we would come to grips just with the fact that the pull is real. 
And God, that we would every day begin to humble ourselves, wake up and say, God, I choose today to serve you, to glorify you. We worship you, God, with everything that we have, everything that we are. God, I pray for someone in this place that desperately needs to surrender their life to you. That maybe they have walked through these doors and maybe they have been baptized and confirmed and all of that stuff, but this has never truly became, became about their heart. And I pray that in this moment right here, someone would submit their very heart to you in fact, if that's you in this place and maybe you're, maybe you're here and maybe you have never responded to the message of Jesus, that he loves you and he died for you and you can be free and you can be forgiven. It's this beautiful relationship with God that comes through Jesus and what he did. It's a heart thing. It's not about where you go and what you do. It's not about going to church and doing religious stuff. It's, it's about a heart that is truly humble before God and saying yes to what he has given. And if you're in this place and you have never done that, you've never made this a real deep down heart thing for you, you can do that in this moment. You just say, God, I give you my heart. Help me, forgive me, change me. I give it to you, God. So God, I pray for that person that needs to make that decision in this moment right here. Someone who's been watching behind a screen in this moment, let this be something significant, something special as our hearts begin to move in your direction. Change us, challenge us, help us, oh God, we pray. And we pray all of this together just in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. amen.